then we'll okay. be fine. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Nice. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, my guests today are Dr. Bandana and Munish Chawla. They are the lifestyle docs, and they're going to be giving you their prescription for wellness. And today's topic is physical activity. Please welcome them back to the show. It's always great to see you. It's always Great to be back on Chef AJ Live. I love oh, that you're doing like all the, yeah, it's so great that you're doing all the different pillars of lifestyle medicine. Yes. Yeah, so today we get to talk about physical activity. Um, so I'll do the first part um, and then Manish will come in and do the second part. And then as always, we'll both be available for Q&A at the end. Thank so you. Let's get started. Okay. Sorry, figuring out why the slide. There we go. Okay. No disclosures. Okay. Yes, we have no disclosures. And these will be our objectives for today. We'll review um, lifestyle medicine briefly again, and then go over a few definitions. We'll go over types of exercise and how I actually prescribe physical activity to my patients. And then Munish will come in and talk about benefits of exercise and how we can inspire and empower ourselves and also those around us um, to bring more physical activity into our lives. So this is a reminder. Um, these are the six pillars of lifestyle medicine that we've discussed before. Um, and as you remember last month, we talked about nutrition. So today we're talking about physical activity and next month we'll talk about stress management. So, I know most of you are familiar with these terms, but for the purpose of this presentation, we wanted to be precise with the definitions of physical activity, exercise, and physical fitness. So physical activity basically is any bodily movement that is produced by the contraction of skeletal muscles and substantially increases energy exp expenditure. So really anything in terms of dancing, mowing your lawn, um, would be counted as physical activity. Exercise, on the other hand, is physical activity that is planned and it has a purpose. Usually the purpose is to maintain or improve physical fitness and it comprises of repetitive bodily movements. And physical fitness is a set of attributes that people possess or are trying to achieve through exercise such as body composition, muscular strength, muscular endurance, flexibility, and cardiorespiratory fitness. In terms of types of exercise, we've got aerobic and endurance, strength or resistance training, and flexibility and balance. And we'll briefly go over all of those. Aerobic and endurance, is any activity that is sustained and involves rhythmic movements of large body muscles. So walking, jogging, dance or studio workout, basketball, soccer, swimming, cycling, all of those would be under aerobic and, and endurance. Strength or resistance training is any exercises that causes muscles to contract against external resistance with the goal of increasing strength, 
tone and endurance. So basically there are two movements. Um, when you're doing strength or resistance training, you're either pushing against resistance or you're pulling against resistance. And so um, full disclosure, most of my life, uh, I have been very good about doing some kind of aerobic exercise and I've enjoyed yoga. So flexibility and balance has been part of my life. But unfortunately, strength and resistance training had not been for about 40, 48 years or so of my life. Um, until we got board certified in lifestyle medicine and basically lifestyle medicine really encourages lifestyle medicine doctors to practice what they preach. So now we are trying to add on a resistance training to our routine as well. And it's so beneficial, especially as a woman in the sense that it helps us reduce our risk for osteoporosis and also reduces uh, debility later in life as we become older. Um, so strength and resistance training is another important component. Um, and then flexibility and balance, of course. Um, flexibility is when you're working on range of motion of a joint or specific set of joints. Um, yoga, Pilates, stretches counts as that. And balance can be either static or dynamic. So the tree pose shown here would be an example of static balance and uh, dynamic balance would be something like alternate lunges. Um, so in terms of exercise, I wanted to uh, give you a few statistics that I looked up. Um, one is that it's the fourth leading risk factor for mortality worldwide. It's the fourth leading cause of premature death. Um, it's important to maintain or improve your physical fitness. And there are numerous other benefits that Dr. M is going to go into further. But one of the things when I was looking up statistics for this presentation that really shocked me was that a more, according to American Heart Association, only about one in five adults and teens are getting enough exercise to maintain good health. So only about 20% of us are getting enough exercise. The rise in chronic diseases that we're seeing is because we're eating way more than we've ever eaten in human history and we're moving way less than before. And one other thing that I wanted to mention was in terms of CDC's recommendations for exercise, they recommend that for adults 18 to 65 years old, that we participate in moderate intensity aerobic physical activity for a minimum of 30 minutes, about five days a week, or vigorous intensity aerobic activity for a minimum of 20 minutes, three days a week. So if you do more intense, you can do fewer days and um, less amount of time, but for moderate, you wanna at least do 30 minutes, five days a week. Along with that, and this is the part I was not getting that I'm really emphasizing for myself and my patients now, is along with that aerobic, every adult should perform activities that maintain or increase muscular strength and endurance for a minimum of two days per week. So really, um, unless you stack them up on the same day, you really need to exercise. Um, one of um, our teachers would say, exercise only on the days that you eat. So. Five days a week, you're doing the aerobic, and two days a week, you're doing the strength training. 
And then now to my patients, I actually prescribe physical activity. So we have handouts in the clinic. Um, it's part of our intake form to see what they're doing currently so we can help move them further uh, towards their exercise goals. And then we write what's called fit prescriptions um, to where again, we really wanna be specific. So F stands for frequency, I stands for intensity, T stands for time, and the other T stands for type of exercise. So here is kind of what our patients often see at the clinic when they come in, we ask them about where their nutrition is, you know, what kind of diet, or um, and this is what they see for exercise. They also have to fill out information on stress and sleep, but um, for exercise, they usually circle where they are, and then that leads to the conversation of either congratulating them on working on it or figuring out what their obstacles and challenges are and how we can move that further and make some goals and plans. So this is what I had mentioned that we, you know, don't just say go exercise or you need to exercise more. Um, we try to really say, okay, um, how often are you going to do it per week? Are you at a level where you should do moderate intensity or are you at a level where you can do high intensity? Um, what type of exercise do you like? Sometimes it requires a little bit of brainstorming. Sometimes um, it's something as simple as, well, they haven't thought about dancing with YouTube videos that are out there and maybe just starting with that. Um, and the time, you know, how much are they going to do um, each session and how much are they going to do per week? And then, of course, to encourage our patients to move, we move with them. Um, so we have um, yoga at the clinic and walk with a doc. Um, and this is one of the pictures from um, our walk of our patients coming out to walk with us. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Walk with a Doc, which is a great organization started by a cardiologist, David Sebgear, in New Jersey that is now spread not all over the U.S., but also all over the world. So look for a Walk with a Doc chapter near you. You don't even have to be a patient of that doctor to go to those walks. Um, for our um, chapter, anybody can join um, on our Walk with a Doc days. So... This is where I hand it over to Dr. M to go further into benefits of exercise and I'll be back for the Q&A. Okay, just full disclosure, that photo we're showing with the walk with the doc, that was pre-pandemic. So slowly the numbers are coming back up, but we haven't had as big a turnout as before the pandemic, but hopefully soon. Okay, so uh, Dr. B, she started mentioning some of the benefits of exercise. I'm gonna kind of pick up where she left and maybe add a few more. So one of the key benefits uh, from exercise is cardiorespiratory fitness. And you know we'll also look at weight maintenance, how it affects or reduces our risk for chronic diseases. We'll look at how exercise benefits our cognitive and emotional health. And finally, we'll uh, touch on the microbiome. Okay, so improved cardiorespiratory fitness. So this is something, you know, we kind of intuitively know someone who's in good shape, you know, they can walk or run or swim a long time. But in research papers, you know, folks are very precise. What does it mean to have good cardiorespiratory fitness? 
And the marker that's used to kind of gauge how fit someone is from a cardiorespiratory standpoint is VO2 max. Okay, so let me kind of explain what VO2 max is. So this is the maximal oxygen absorption that we can, uh, the amount of oxygen we can absorb, how much volume per unit of time, usually it's per minute and per kilogram of body weight. So someone who's five feet two and 130 pounds, you can compare their fitness to someone who's six feet two and 240 pounds. So it's, uh, the weight is taken into account. And basically how fast we can use the oxygen that we take in gives us an idea how well our mitochondria, how well we're burning fuel. So basically fuel, which is glucose, glucose plus oxygen, will determine how much energy we produce and how efficiently we can make that reaction at a cellular level gives us an idea of how fit we are, how quickly we can take in the oxygen, how quickly we can remove byproducts, the waste products. And the, what they have found is the higher the VO2 max, the more oxygen we can absorb, the more oxygen we can take up, per unit of time per kilogram of body weight is a predictor of mortality, okay? So the higher the VO2 max, higher your cardiorespiratory fitness, and the higher it is, the longer you live. The lower your cardiorespiratory fitness or lower VO2 max, this is an independent risk factor for diabetes and hypertension. So let's say you have normal body weight, your eating habits are pretty good, and you don't have a family history for diabetes, hypertension, or other chronic diseases, having low cardiorespiratory fitness, having a low VO2 max is an independent risk factor for developing diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and other chronic diseases. Also, if you're someone who has low VO2 max or low cardiorespiratory fitness, I'm kind of using those terms interchangeably, that that's going, if you go from low to high, you improve your fitness, that's going to increase your longevity. But if it's the other way, sometimes people are athletes in high school or college, and then they become sedentary. They're no longer staying fit. They're no longer working out on a regular basis. Well, that can cause premature death. We're losing both health span and lifespan if we don't have good cardiorespiratory fitness. And this was a surprise to me when I started kind of researching this. It's not just about feeling good, having more energy. It literally extends our lifespan. Okay. And the next thing that, you know, oftentimes people mention is physical activity for weight maintenance. So people will often, you know, when we're first starting, they'll say, okay, doc, I think my weight is going up, that I'm not moving enough, my physical activity is down. And I remind them, and I think first time I heard this was on Chef AJ, you lose weight in the kitchen, you get fit in the gym. So I remind people that for weight loss, exercise has, you know, modest or very minimal effect. However, research shows for maintenance of weight, exercise is very beneficial. So, you know, eating healthy is important to lose weight, but to maintain that weight, weight loss, you need to continue to eat healthfully, but also add in the exercise. And the minimum amount that most 
uh, studies will say is 250 minutes to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. And perhaps I should kind of clarify what low intensity, moderate intensity, and high intensity exercise is. So low intensity exercise would be, uh, let's say walking. If you're walking and you can sing, then that would be considered low intensity exercise. If you are jogging at a comfortable pace, you know, you can carry on a conversation with someone jogging next to you, that would be considered moderate intensity exercise. And high intensity would be that you can't even carry on a conversation. You're breathing so hard, that would be considered high intensity exercise. So typically the research says that for weight maintenance, a minimum of 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week is recommended or what they see as showing benefit. Okay, however, we have the National Weight Control Registry. So this is the largest reg registry of patients who have lost more than 50 pounds and kept it off for more than one year. And you know they send surveys to these folks and typically folks that are on this registry, they are getting 420 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. So that's basically an hour a day. So just to kind of let people know that for weight maintenance, you know, for most of us, really increasing the physical activity in the day, the exercise is really needed, is really helpful. And then a lot of my patients will ask me, you know, is it better to do yoga or Pilates or do resistance and strength training or to swim or jog? And the data shows that aerobic exercises, you know, cycling, walking, jogging, swimming, these type of exercises, the aerobic exercises are more effective for weight maintenance than the other types. I mean, there's, you know, different reasons to do different ones, but for weight loss and maintenance, I should say just weight maintenance, aerobic exercise is more effective. Okay. And also the next sort of major category uh, that exercise or physical activity is helpful in is in reducing the incidence of chronic diseases. So they have done research on this where they uh, look at diet and exercise. And these are folks who are, this one particular study that I'm talking about is the diabetes prevention protocol done, oh, I'm forgetting the year, but in any case, they had folks that were insulin resistant. So they had pre-diabetes. They're not able to uh, manage their sugar metabolism very well, but they don't meet the criteria for diabetes. And the goal of the study was that if we prescribe physical activity to them, will that reduce their risk of becoming diabetic? So this study actually had three arms. In one arm, you have the regular control patients. They were not prescribed physical activity or metformin. The second arm of the study, folks were prescribed metformin to see if that would prevent people from progressing from prediabetes to diabetes. And in the third arm, diet and exercise was chosen. So metformin indeed helped reduce the incidence of diabetes for, uh, let's see, about 32% of patients. So it, you know, it, it did well then the control arm, but diet and physical activity, uh, sorry, 
diet and exercise reduce the incidence of people developing diabetes over the course of uh, two and a half years by over 52%. So diet and exercise was much more effective in preventing people from going from pre-diabetes to diabetes. Another thing that exercise is really useful for patients with pre-diabetes and diabetes is we have what are called GLUT4 receptors. So these are on our muscle cells. So typically when you eat a meal and your sugar goes up in the bloodstream, there's a certain amount of insulin that's produced and insulin is sort of like the, uh, the usher. It helps usher in glucose from the bloodstream into the cell. With GLUT4 receptor, this gets turned on when we're engaging in physical activity. So when you're actively exercising, moving your body, this GLUT4 receptor on the muscle cell gets turned on that you don't need insulin to guide the glucose molecules into the muscle cell. So folks who are insulin resistant, this is really helpful for them for better glucose control. Whether you have prediabetes or diabetes, exercising after a meal is really useful because this is when your glucose is gonna go up, You know, usually after a meal. So if you can help your body by turning on the GLUT4 receptor, and a lot of the glucose goes from the bloodstream into your cells without the aid of insulin, this can reduce the amount of insulin that the body needs to produce, okay? Another common uh, way that physical activity improves uh, or decreases our risk for chronic diseases is by producing various compounds. So when muscles are actively moving, they produce wonderful compounds and they're called myokines. These are different peptides that go to different body parts. So there's myokines that'll go to the liver, other myokines that go to the kidney and heart. And whatever organ-specific myokines are getting there, they're actually helping that organ function better. So these are sort of like, you can almost think of them as tonic for the liver, tonic for the muscles, tonic for the kidneys really improves their function, okay? Another thing exercise, is, exercise does, the muscle cells, when they're actively moving, produce VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor. So this is what's going to increase the efficiency of the blood supply to an organ. This is going to help in laying down new blood vessels. So if you improve the blood supply to an organ, the heart or the brain, it's gonna function better. And all of these compounds, myokines, vascular endothelial growth factor, numerous other growth factors, numerous other peptides, they are produced during active exercise. So our muscle cells, you know, we always hear that uh, fat cells are an endocrine organ. They're producing different compounds that you know, work with hormones and different parts of our body, in a sense, our muscle cells are also an endocrine organ. They're producing wonderful peptides, myokines, different growth factors to help the body throughout. Another thing that Dr. B briefly mentioned, that weight resistance exercise, you know, uh, resistance training or weight training, this can really improve our bone density. 
And as we get older, our bones become a little less dense. We just lose bone tissue. But you can counteract that age-related bone loss by increasing uh, resistance training, by increasing weight training. doesn't matter if you do free weights, machines, bands, just some resistance form of training. You put tension on the muscles and the bone cells, and this stimulates increase in bone density. And this is especially a problem for uh, women as after menopause because estrogen has a protective impact on the bones. So, but after menopause, when estrogen levels fall, women oftentimes will lose a lot of bone density. And this is a way when you do strength and resistance training, you can maintain or even grow the bone density. So reducing our risk for hip fractures, reducing our you know, risk for spine fractures, really fractures in any part of the body. Okay, uh, exercise is also very helpful in management of anxiety and depression. And this is, you know, sort of uh, what I've heard sort of colloquially that exercise is least or underutilized for depression and food is overutilized for anxiety in our society. So we really want to bring the awareness to you know, our patients, but also to other physicians when we give these talks, that there's a lot of research which shows that exercise in many studies shows that it's just as effective as an antidepressant. So first-line antidepressants like you know, Zoloft or Paxil and these sort of things, studies show that exercise is just as effective. A numerous meta-analysis show that exercise is helpful, not just in depression, but also in anxiety. But I do want to kind of acknowledge that there is some limitation in the research because at this time, folks are reluctant to use exercise alone as a treatment for depression. So the amount of research is not as robust but there's more and more studies coming out which show that for depression, exercise is just as effective as you know, a first-line antidepressant. And you know, since uh, Dr. B and I are lifestyle, lifestyle medicine physicians, uh, she sees general patients, I just see lifestyle medicine patients. She always gives them a choice. She says, okay, you know, you're going through a rough time right now, we can get an exercise regimen. She was really, you know, has writes them a prescription. This is what I would recommend, especially being out in nature, or I can write a prescription for an antidepressant. And then she goes over what are the risks and benefits from doing one over the other. And again, you know, it's the patient's choice where they are and, you know, what is gonna work for them in their life at that time. But the important thing is to give our patients a choice, that there's enough research for us to tell them that you can choose either exercise or an antidepressant. Okay. And this is something, you know, I think we kind of all know intuitively that it improves our cognitive health. So when you had a good night's sleep, you tend to do better on the test tomorrow. You're just mentally sharper. I think most of us know that from general experience. But it's been you know, well-researched and there is improves our cognitive health, especially in the setting of dementia as we get older. 
So just like we're losing uh, some bone density as we get older, we're also new losing some neuronal density. So to keep up that cognitive function, to improve our memory specifically, it is really helpful to do exercise. You know, people are always looking for the fountain of youth and really it's regular physical exercise. There's numerous research, uh, research which shows that with exercise, you can de uh, reduce the decline in cognitive function. They have folks with who don't have dementia or Alzheimer's dementia at this time, but they have some cognitive decline. If they put them on a regular exercise regimen, they can show improvement in their cognitive function, improvement in their memory. And the way uh, researchers are saying, you know, how is this, you know, what is happening at the cellular level? So one of the things that I mentioned that the muscle cells are producing all these different factors, uh, peptides and hormones. One of the, another thing that they produce is BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Okay, so initially when this was first discovered, it was thought that this factor was only made by the brain. Okay, so neurotrophic means something that grows neurons. So brain-derived neuron growing factor. But now we know with physical exercise, they can measure the, a person's blood before and after exercise, and they see a spike in BDNF. So this is like a growth serum for our neurons. So this is you know, one of the ways it's going to improve our cognitive function. We're going to be able to retain our memory. The other thing I mentioned previously, it also uh, exercise produces vascular endothelial growth factor, which is growing new blood vessels or keeping the existing blood vessels healthier. So it improves our vascular health. So if you can improve the blood supply to the brain, you can see how this would also help our neurons functioning better and you know, sticking around longer. Another thing exercise does, it, it decreases the inflammation in our body. And this is helpful at just about any level, decreasing our risk for uh, chronic diseases, decreasing our risk for degenerative diseases, decreasing our risk for practically any, any disease. Any disease is made worse by increase in inflammation. So we can decrease inflammation. Diabetes is not as bad. You know, weight loss is a little bit easier. And the other thing it does, it decreases neuroinflammation. So when you're decreasing neuroinflammation, you're decreasing the risk for dementia, decreasing the risk for other neurodegenerative diseases. And lastly, another mechanism how uh, exercise may be reducing risk of dementia and Alzheimer's is by lowering our stress hormones, particularly cortisol. So these are some of the mechanisms that allow us to improve our cognitive health, improve our uh, memory, and really reduce our risk for getting Alzheimer's dementia. Okay, and the last uh, thing I'll cover, I mean, we can probably spend another 30 minutes talking about the benefits of exercise, but the last major category that I wanna discuss is the microbiome. This is something that, you know, there's so much research going on in the last 10 years and it's showing that the microbiome or the bacteria in our gut are so central to our health. 
they decide what our weight is going to be, what the glucose level is going to be, what our cholesterol is. So we are not an individual organism, we're a super organism. And the bacteria in our gut are intimately involved with the immune system, intimately involved with our physiology, and they help us keep healthy. And exercise improves our gut health. And one of the ways it does it is by improving barrier functions, okay? So when you have food kind of going through the intestine, there is a mucus lining, which is going to, uh, so there's food and bacteria inside the lumen. And then on top of the epithelial cells, there's barrier or protective uh, membrane called the mucus lining. So bacteria can't just come onto the epithelial cell. There's a mucus lining that protects. And in this mucus lining, there's various peptides, various antibodies. And regular folks who exercise regularly have a thicker mucus layer, so a better barrier, a better protective membrane. Also, their IgA, uh, this is one of the antibodies that's in this mucous membrane, is more robust. It's, there's higher levels of IgA, which is a protective antibody from uh, you know, path, pathogenic bacteria. Another thing that exercise does it increases the diversity of our microbiota, increases the diversity of the bacteria that's in our gut. And this is receiving more and more uh, press, and there's research showing the higher the diversity of the microbiota, the better your gut health is. And you know, gut is central to our overall health. Remember, 70% of our immune system is in our GI tract. So if our gut is healthy, that means our immune system is going to be healthy. And all of this works together. And when we exercise regularly, which works to increase the diversity of bacteria in our colon and other parts of the GI tract, when the gut is healthy, the epithelial cells are healthy, this is going to translate into our immune system being healthy. So reducing our risk for chronic diseases, and also for autoimmune diseases. So if our immune system is healthy, which means our inflammation, our systemic inflammation is going to be lower. Again, you know, making us healthier. Okay, so, you know, I share a lot of the research with my patients and, you know, they may not know the benefits to this detail that I've covered, but everybody generally knows that exercise is good for us. They know that it's good for them, they want to do it, but still a lot of my patients, it's very hard to get them to move. And you know, they have excuses or they feel like they feel embarrassed to go to the gym or they feel like they're so out of shape that they can't do anything or they say they don't have enough time. And really we spend a lot of time exploring, okay, what are your barriers? You know, what can we make you do? So when a patient first starts exercising, I say, even if you can give me 10 minutes and you just walk around the block or you walk inside your apartment, doesn't matter what you do. Maybe you dance to a YouTube video. Any sort of physical activity that you do regularly that's planned, that you do intentionally is helpful. And the hardest thing is to get started, right? So oftentimes I'll share my experience or share experience of other patients who initially had trouble exercising. 
we connect to their values. Okay, you know, what is important to you? You know, is health, you know, having more energy, is that something you value? So whatever, you know, we kind of go over different ways to inspire them, you know, sharing videos, sharing articles, sharing research. A lot of the inspiration that I have gotten uh, is from this book by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. She's a health psychologist at Stanford. And if uh, folks are interested in reading a book, the book Joy of Movement does a wonderful job of not just sharing the science, but really inspiring people to move. And I'm going to kind of go over some of the things I learned from this book, The Joy of Movement. And she basically says that what we really want to do is we want to feel good. And she wants to let folks know that by exercise, we are connecting to our feel-good systems. So some of the peptides, some of the hormones, some of the growth factors, they not only improve our health in terms of reducing chronic diseases, they produce specific compounds which make us feel good. And I already talked about the myokines earlier. So we're going to talk about the endorphins and the endocannabinoid system. So in the endocannabinoid system, this is some, something you may have heard of that when people describe a runner's high, you know, after running for a significant amount of time, you actually feel more joyous. You feel good. You don't have the aches and pains that you had earlier, almost or euphoria sets in. So this is the endocannabinoid system getting activated. For this to get activated, you have to exercise a considerable amount. It's not going to happen after two, three miles. Usually for most people, it'll take seven, eight miles or longer. But this is something, you know, people who run marathons, they get hooked on running. And this is one of the reasons because they feel really good about it. The other thing the endocannabinoid system does, it naturally reduces our stress hormones, decreases after anxiety. But as I mentioned, is produced after considerable effort, you know, after, you know, using running as an example, after you, you know, jogged for a while. Another thing that uh, Dr. McGonigal really makes a point about is group movement. So we are hardwired to be part of a community. And there's an evolutionary link with cooperation and movement. So when we are moving as a group, we actually feel more joy. It's easier to foster connections when we're doing something that we're physically moving. So she encourages, you know, whether it's a rowing team or whether, you know, dancing in the studio, outside, wherever, if you can do a group activity, that's going to give you much more joy. And it's going to foster social connection. The other thing that is really helpful in folks who are having trouble getting started with exercise is adding music. So the uh, part of the brain that is receptive to music and part of the brain that's responsible for physical activity, those two parts of the brain are right next to each other. It's like the circuitry for listening to music and the neurocircuitry for movement is interlinked. So when you add music to the mix, it literally reduces your labor. You feel like you're not working as hard. So if your you know, goal is to you know, jog longer than you did previously, if you add music, this is going to reduce the amount of perceived effort. 
So it really makes the workout easier. And you know, I don't need to tell folks how to access music. There's so many apps, YouTube, you know, song, different places you can access music. The other thing I want to kind of talk about separately from just regular exercise is what is termed green exercise. As I mentioned, that you know, when you have uh, that feel good, the runner's high, that feel good euphoria after running for a considerable time, it takes considerable effort to make you feel good. But when you go out into nature, there's almost immediate benefit. We switch into a more receptive mode and we turn off our default mode net network. This is the part of the brain plays, you know, kind of uh, ruminating and worrying and anxious. So just by going into nature, going into woods, this turns off that part of the brain. So green exercise is especially useful to, for depression. When Dr. B is making a prescription for exercise, she tries to get her patients go out into nature as much as possible. It's better if you can go to a heavily wooded trail but just going to a neighborhood park helps as well. You know, just the just seeing some green is just very healing for the human body. So our message to our patients is just move. Whether you dance alone in your apartment or you're dancing with a group or you're doing a yoga class. This is one of the pictures of a yoga class at our clinic that we hold, you know, a couple of times a month. So it doesn't matter if you're doing yoga, you're doing dancing, or you're you know, jogging or running, or you're just going out into the woods, just you know, taking a short stroll. Anything you do in terms of physical activity by just moving, it is so beneficial for you. It not only will give you fitness, not just reduce your risk for chronic diseases, it's going to make you feel really good. So that's our message to our patients. If you're looking for the fountain of youth, it is exercise. So thank you so much for your attention. I'm gonna call Dr. B back so we can take uh, some of your questions. Dr. B back, I like that name, Dr. B back. <laughs> so we're both Dr. Chala. So, you know, people are always calling Dr. Chala and we both look up. So now I, I'm Dr. M and she's Dr. B. So we know who, which Dr. Chala they're wanting to get attention. Oh, that's great. Do you want to take it off screen share? Or I can do that. If oh, you like. yes. Yes. Sorry. Okay. No I... problem. Well, we like to see your beautiful faces. You know, that was really interesting. And I'm curious. So when you said something like how exercise improves the microbiome, I mean, how do they know who like who does those studies, for example? I know. I know. This is really fascinating. And they really are not 100% sure, you know, is it the improvement in barrier functions? You know, what exactly is causing the bacteria to be more diverse, to be more plentiful. So basically these are, they do studies, you know, part of the American Gut Project, they have stool samples from, you know, 22,000 different individuals from all over the world, from seven different countries. And as part of that, they also do, and there's been other studies in addition to that, but they also check, you know, what are you eating? What are your activity? You know, so they also do sort of a detailed analysis on the diet and lifestyle of the person with these stool samples. And what they notice is people who eat a variety of plant foods, they have a richer, more robust uh, 
bacteria or microbiome, more diverse. more diverse bacteria. And people who exercise also have a more diverse bacteria. And there are other studies, you know, looking more specifically. So it's, you know, they're basically looking at stool samples and seeing, you know, who has more diverse bacteria. And the folks who exercise have this. And at first they thought it was like outdoor exercise, like people who are out in nature, hiking and stuff, that improves your microbiome because the trees around you help you. But they found that that does improve it. But even indoor exercise, even being on the treadmill um, helps. So it's not just the outdoors, it's the exercise itself as well. Do, do they look at it through, I mean, not, they, they don't go inside your stomach or anything. No, no, they, they don't. So okay. all of this research is possible because of the American Gut Project. So most of these bacteria that we're talking about, they are obligate anaerobic, which means they can't survive in oxygen. Okay, so we really couldn't study them until about 20 years ago. So what we're actually studying is the DNA. So DNA technology has gotten so much better and you know, our computers and number crunching has gotten so much better that we are actually looking at stool samples and looking at the DNA of these bacteria. And the more diverse DNA, so each bacteria is gonna have a different DNA, just like you and I have different DNA, you know, different sets of genes. Bacteria also have different sets of genes. So the more diverse the bacteria, the more different number of DNA they have. So this is how they're able to kind of do all of this with stool samples. They don't need to do a colonoscopy or anything invasive. This is all just through stool samples. Good, all right, glad to know. You know, I've heard this said before and you concurred about how, particularly when somebody's in a diabetic, exercise becomes even more important. Yes, yes. So uh, do you want to- Yeah, so it's basically what he talked about in terms of the GLUT4 receptor. So you don't necessarily need insulin when you're exercising to get sugar from your bloodstream into your cells. Um, Exercise upregulates these other receptors that without insulin are able to get your sugar. And so for type one diabetics, that can really reduce their insulin requirements. Um, and for type 2 diabetics as well, it's not just insulin requirements. It can help them reduce their oral hypoglycemics and other medications as they increase their exercise. So in terms of hemoglobin A1C, the numbers that I see is when people add on exercise, um, 150 to 300 minutes a week, their hemoglobin A1C can drop 0.5 points. Um, and that's with no dietary changes, just the exercise being added on. That's fantastic. I mean, while we encourage people and we hope they'll become whole food, plant-based, you know, oil-free, low fat, it, it, at least it's exercise still can help them. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, imagine what it would do for them if they followed the diet as well. Yes, <laughs> if they do both. If and- they do all six pillars that we're talking about. You know, I I don't know how you feel about this and how you find your patients in your practice, but I find it's harder to get people to exercise if they've had lifelong inactivity than to even change their diet. Yeah, yeah. This is the really the big challenge with lifestyle medicine in general. We humans are very habitual. Things we've been doing for a lifetime or for decades, and now, you know, you know the information, this is better for you. But transferring that into actual action where patient eats better, you know, exercises, sleeps on time, this is the real challenge of lifestyle medicine. And this is, 
you know, this is what we work on, really on behavior change to get people to gently guide them, really make it like do anything. You know, this is literally what I tell them. Give me 10 minutes, three times a week, and you can choose. You can, you know, do a dance on YouTube. You can, you know, a YouTube video. You can walk around the block. Anything you're willing to do. So just basically asking them, you know, where are you wanting to start? Just reminding them, okay, you signed up for this program. You want to lose weight. And this is something that'll help you. So just kind of reminding them of their health goals, reminding them that this is really helpful. And then starting off slow. And once, you know, they're doing regularly 10 minutes walking every day, let's say, or walking three times a week, then we can say, let's go to 15 or maybe add an extra day. So starting off slow really helps, but you are right. This is a challenge. So there's so much psychology in this, right? It's not just, this is what you should do and now go do it, right? There's, you have to change your relationship. Um, so in terms of changing your relationship with food, and changing your relationship with exercise. So many of these things go back to our childhood. So many of my patients have this relationship with exercise to where they feel like it's, it's punishment. Like, oh, I ate that dessert. Now I'm going to have to go exercise. And that's what we're trying to change is that relationship. And that's why that book, Joy of Movement, is so helpful is because now their relationship needs to shift from exercise as a punishment to exercise is joyful and it makes me feel happy. And once that relationship slowly starts shifting, then it becomes easier to bring it into your life more and more. I think some of us grew up with these horrible physical education teachers, you know, mm -hmm. that didn't make it fun and that, that often, you know, were shaming or punitive. And, you know, it's interesting because by the time I got to high school, physical education was an elective. It was no longer even required in the state of California. I think by the time I was actually in junior high school. So I think I think that was a big mistake. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, this is like she mentioned, only 20 percent of uh, individuals like even including teenagers are getting adequate amount of exercise and which is you know not a you know large amount even the minimum requirements only 20% of americans are meeting that so my patients with kids i really encourage them to do exercise and physical activity that's fun with their kids so those kids have a healthier relationship with exercise where they view it as something they got to do with their family as something that was fun um, and it can really change the whole trajectory in terms of that early uh, relationship with exercise. Yeah, I think sometimes the only exercise kids get this day are their thumbs. I know, I you know. know. <laughs> they don't go outside and play anymore. And sometimes it's not safe for them or it's, it's just, it's too bad. You know, I'm curious, what do you guys do for exercise, each of you? So, you know, we... Uh, we like to do a, uh, different things. So one day a week, we like to go swimming. One day a week, we like to go running. Couple of times a, a week now, we've added strength training. We actually use the Peloton app. So we do strength training. Uh, one day a week, we do yoga. And one day a week, we actually do uh, dancing to YouTube videos. That's we, new. <laughs> that's, that's new also. So a lot of times it's raining. We can't go out jogging. So we'll put on a video and do like Zumba workout on YouTube. Yeah. Nice. nice. Oh, boy. So I did have a question that came, a couple of questions came in. One is, is sort of on the topic, one maybe not as much. But the question from... 
Judy is, how would you treat osteoporosis in a 68-year-old female with no secondary cause of bone loss other than low body weight? Because that exercise does play into this question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the ways that you can really help your bone density and reduce your risk for fractures is by doing resistance training. So this is, you know, whether she chooses to do bands, if that's something she feels safer with or machines, it doesn't have to be free weights. Basically, when you are moving against resistance, it puts more tension, not just on the muscles, not just on the tendons, but also on the bone. And anything that's under tension is going to grow. So you can actually have your bones, you know, grow more dense and become more robust. And also enough, uh, you know, I don't, I always am careful to mention protein because people get all concerned on a whole food plant. Mm -hmm. You're getting plenty of protein, but still kind of making sure you're getting adequate amount of calcium, adequate amount of protein, adequate amount of magnesium, uh, all these different, but if you're eating a healthy, balanced, whole food plant-based diet, you're going to be getting all that. So nutrition is important, but adding in this piece of resistance training is really helpful. I'm just going to add on because she's 68. Um, if she's going to do uh, machines, maybe start off with a personal trainer because people can hurt themselves when they have never done this before and they start doing it. Bands are definitely safer. Um, another thing I'm going to say is gardening has been shown to really be helpful also in terms of osteoporosis. Um, they think it's also because you're outdoors and you're getting vitamin D as well. And there's, of course, lifting and things involved with gardening. And people who usually garden tend to do it long term, whereas a lot of time people start off with strength training and then stop. Um, gardening people do tend to do longer term. So that's been shown to be helpful. And then even there are things like um, weight vest um, yeah. to where you can wear this uh, vest that has weights and then do your housework or walk around the neighborhood or something with weights. And that can also help uh, the bones get stronger. You know, I, I love the point that you made about how exercise is the most underutilized antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication. Mm -hmm. But for many people, the only problem is just like the pill they would take, it has to be done daily. You can't just like do it once a week or just once and done, you know? Right, mm -hmm. right. And that, that's the challenge and that's the opportunity as well. Yeah. I, I think if people knew how good they would feel, you know, with the exercise as opposed to the drugs, but it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. If those things had never been invented, people would then have to exercise and eat right, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the live viewers is asking, do you feel that exercising before breakfast is more favorable than after, or maybe it doesn't matter? Okay. So this is what I tell my patients, exercise anytime that works with your schedule. Okay, if you're going to do it first thing in the morning, you're more likely to do it then, do it then. So just doing it regularly is the single most important thing. For patients who are pre-diabetics or diabetics, I encourage them to do at least some form of exercise right after the meal, because this is when they can do the most good, right? So if they're walking, moving right after a meal, this is when their blood glucose is gonna be the highest. So if they can help out their system by turning on the GLUT4 receptors so they can take some of the glucose from the bloodstream and get it into the muscle cells without needing insulin, 
that is really helpful. So it can you know, decrease insulin resistance. It can really be an aid in managing their blood sugars and A1C. But other than those folks who have diabetes, and I tell them, you know, if you're working at lunch and you can only walk 10 minutes, walk 10 minutes, maybe do the longer workout at other times. But other than cave that caveat, literally exercise when you're going to be able to do it, whatever works for you. Don't worry about the fine print. Right. But I find that if people don't do it in the morning, it's too easy not to do it because exactly. if you do it first thing in the morning, yes. nothing's going to come up. But if yes. you wait, it's too many variables, it's, it's I, I just feel, you know, I completely agree. You're exactly right. Someone who's just starting off, I really encourage them to do it in the morning, but I have several of my patients, you know, they do it right after work. And, you know, that was, it, it, no, if they will stick with it. That is fine. But I, I know myself because I'll just be too tired and I'll find everything not to do it. But by getting, getting into the habit of it's literally the first thing I your do. Morning routine. Yeah. 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 To where I've got to brush in the morning. I've got to meditate in the morning and I've got to exercise in the morning before I leave the house. And yeah. that, that's you know, what a, makes it happen. Self-care is like a full-time job, isn't it? <laughs> when done, when done right. And uh, oh boy. Okay. Um, this one isn't about exercise, but they did send it specifically for you from Karen. It's actually about iodine. And she says, I've been plant only for about two years. She's 59. I've stopped using iodized salt because it has so many other ingredients like dextrose, sodium bicarbonate, and yellow prussiate of soda. And, it, and now I'm concerned I'm not getting enough iodine. I want to have our iodine levels tested, but I'm not sure which iodine test we should order. The lab offers three different versions, serum plasma, random urine, and 24-hour urine. Also, we want to start taking an iodine supplement, but not sure. I mean, I, I was told you could just have some sea vegetables, you know. That you yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so like dulse and... Um, yeah, arabe. Yeah. Yeah. So those have uh, iodine in them naturally. You can do that. Um, and you really don't need that much iodine. So if you even do iodized salt, you don't have to do very much of it. Um, you can check levels, the easiest one, and that's perfectly fine to use, even though it's easier than the other two, is the serum plasma iodine in your blood work. Um, and I have actually had some uh, plant-based patients who are completely SOS-free, uh, and they're not doing sea vegetables who are coming back on iodine. And when um, that is low, that does affect your thyroid. So I've seen TSH be a little high in those patients. And when we check iodine, it's low. And then we add the sea vegetables or many of the vegan supplements these days, they have a little iodine as well. So I know like Complement, Hippo 7, Future Kind, there are a lot of vegan multivitamins out there. They do put in a little iodine as well. Um, and once we get their iodine up, a lot of times the thyroid uh, levels also go back to normal. Nice. Great. Well, thank you. This has just been so informative. Do you know what uh, pillar you're going to talk about next month? Yes. We're going to talk about stress management next month. Stre oh, that's a, that's a big one. So terrific. Well, I so enjoy your presentations. Thank you so much for doing them. Oh, we enjoy them as well. Thank you so much, Chef AJ. Oh, thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest is Robert Cheek, Vegan Conversations with Robert Cheek, and he is going to be interviewing the CEO of Next Level Burger. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.